morning, and so I want to add my welcome uh, to our guests uh, this morning as well. Glad that you uh, chose to come and be with God's people in God's house here today. Take out your Bibles, please, and open them to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. And if you are a regular part of our family here at Liberty, you know that every single Sunday we take out our Bibles and we open them and we look into the Word of God. And as a pastor, I have a goal. I'm not just up here saying words that you know, may or may not fall into your lives and into your hearts. I actually have a goal in what I'm doing. My goal, my desire is to see you changed. But... Those of you who were in Sunday school this morning will know the answer to this. Can I, can I change you? The answer is no. I, I, can't, I can't change you. But there is something that is far more powerful than I am, and that's the Word of God. And the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, can make all of us become more like the Son of God. The Word of God, through the Spirit of God, can make us like the Son of God. And that's why every Sunday, whether it's me preaching or one of the other pastors here, we're going to open the Word of God, and we're going to look into the Bible. And here's my goal. Well, my goal is, is life change. But as, a, as, a, uh, as far as my sermon goes, what I'm after is this. I want us to look at a passage together. And by the time I'm done preaching, you look at that passage and go, yep, what he said is just exactly what this passage means, and it's God's purpose for us in understanding this passage. I think sometimes we hear preaching, and we get to the end of it, and we think, uh, the preacher said a lot of good things, uh, and the passage that we read is a good and true passage, but I'm not sure where the two intersect with each other. My goal in preaching is to let the Word of God say what God's voice has for us so that we look in a passage and we understand the Bible better after having studied that passage of Scripture together. So Exodus chapter 15, and I'm going to be preaching from verses 22 through 27. Now let me give us, a, let's just kind of take a run up to it here this morning. Remember, the book of Exodus is telling the story of God's people who have been delivered from the Egyptians, and now they are in the desert, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling with them. God's presence is dwelling with his people. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire are, are, are leading God's people through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Remember, so they're delivered so that the Spirit may dwell on their way to dwell. Delivered, dwell, dwell is the, is the theme of the book of Exodus. God's people have been delivered from slavery and God is dwelling with them by His Spirit on their way to dwell with Him in the promised land. And you know that that's our story as well, right? You've been delivered from sin and slavery by the powerful salvation that God worked in Christ on the cross. And now His Spirit dwells with us as we are in this wilderness wandering time on our way to be with Him in the new heavens and new earth, God's people in God's place forever. So we are delivered as He dwells with us on our way to dwell with him. That's the story. And here most recently, in Exodus chapter 14, God had brought the people of Israel right up against the banks of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army was coming, and it looked to the people of Israel like they were absolutely going to be destroyed. There was no way. They weren't a warrior nation, and Egypt was a warrior nation. And so the chariots are making their way, a beeline to the people of Israel against the banks of the Red Sea. And God comes between Pharaoh uh, and the people of Israel and the, uh, the pillar of fire and cloud. And then God opens up a way through the Red Sea and the people walk through. The people of Israel walk through safely on dry ground to the other side. God's, uh, God lifts the cloud of pillar and fire. The Egyptians begin to make their way in and God destroys the people of Egypt, the army of Egypt. Uh, in the Red Sea. And then ver uh, chapter 15 is, uh, is, a, is a dance party. Uh, chapter 15 is where the dance party begins. And you're like, is that really in the Hebrew? Yeah, that's in the Hebrew. This is definitely an Old Testament people of God dance party in verses 1 through, uh, through 18 or so. Um, yeah, uh, where they sing this song of God's deliverance and, uh, and how God has uh, rescued them from the people uh, of, of Egypt. That brings us to verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they 
came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, or some of your versions may say tree or a wood, a branch. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. And that's where I'm getting the title for the sermon this morning, Tested. The Lord tested his people there at Marah. Verse 26, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. When they came to Elam, where the twelve, excuse me, then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, and we ask now that you would help us to have eyes to see, Matt already prayed this, ears to hear, hearts to feel, and wills to obey what we see in your word here together this morning. As Will already mentioned, Lord, help us not waste our lives with nominal or minimal Christian living. I pray that we would be people who, after this sermon this morning, are more diligent to hear your voice and do what is right. And also trust in the work that Christ has done for us in that way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a number of teachers in our church teach in different schools here in our community. Those many of you have taught before, or you are teaching now, maybe aspiring teachers and some of the younger people in our congregation. A lot of different people are teachers in our church. And teachers do this thing with students. How many of you, are, if you're a student, raise your hand in here. If you're, if you're a, in some way, shape, or form a student. Now, on on uh, every week or two, a teacher, you can put your hands down, a teacher does this thing where they bring, uh, they prepare a test for you in your class. How many of you, test day is your favorite day of school? No, no, I mean, but like, is it your favorite day of school? I see a few of you nodding your heads and saying yes, and I just don't believe you. I, I just, I'm, not, I'm not even going to allow that to stand. For, for most of us, the time that we get tested is a day of great anxiety and anticipation. Some of you know that I've been working uh, on another degree, and uh, in two weeks, on Friday morning, over Zoom, I will have my uh, academic supervisor and a second reader, and they are going to... Um, attack me. And I assume it's a, an attack because I, what I'm doing, they keep telling me that I have to defend my project before these two. And so I don't know if like they, I'm glad I'm doing it over Zoom because I think like swords are involved or something like that. So the, and, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a little bit anxious about it. I, I, I can't say that I'm like eagerly looking, I'm looking forward to having it done. I can't say that I'm looking forward to the actual testing time. Why do teachers give tests? Are they, are, they, are they just that mean and that, you know, um, a set against you as a student? That, that really isn't the reason why teachers give a test, is it? Teachers give a test for, for a couple of reasons that I think are related. Teachers give tests to determine what you've learned and to help you learn, right? And we all, those of us who have done school, been through school, we're on the other side of it, we're like, yeah, we didn't like them, but they did, I mean, can you imagine being in school, but there would be, there was no way to evaluate, there was no testing, like, I think a lot of us would have just been like, I'm good, I'm sure I learned whatever I needed to learn, but that testing made us 
memorize things and have the ability to write things and communicate things. The testing is what proved whether or not we had, we had learned something. And here we see in Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27, we see God doing something. If we don't understand the purpose for testing, we're going to look at God as kind of like, I mean, you, you just brought him against the Red Sea, and they were totally stressed out and freaked out about that, and they thought they were going to die, and now you've delivered them, and three days later you're testing them again already, and we might think that God is capricious or that God is somehow uh, demented. Like, what are you doing, God? Why are you doing these unkind things to your people, but that is not what God is doing to his people, any more than a teacher who tests his, his, his students more than once throughout the course of a semester is being unkind to his students either. God is testing his people. The main point this morning is this, and you'll see where, uh, where we're going here in just a moment. We often fail our tests, but God never fails his. We often fail our tests. And we're going to see the people of Israel being tested this morning, and they're actually going to fail their test initially. We're also going to see in the scriptures this morning God being tested and not failing. So we often fail our tests, but God never fails his. And we'll walk through this passage of scripture using three points to kind of help guide us um, as we go. Number one is this, God led his people to be tested. God actually is the one who led his people to be tested. Now, we can't forget what we've already read up to this point in Exodus chapter 15, that God is leading his people through the wilderness with this enormous pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And there's no question in the minds of the people of Israel who is leading them. They know that Moses is God's earthly representative for them, but they can literally see the presence of God leading them in their lives. And, and uh, at the end of the Red Sea experience, verse 22 says Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. I've had the privilege of being in uh, the Middle East uh, uh, several different times throughout my life. And, and, I mean, the Texas Panhandle has some wildernessy areas, some dry, arid country. Some of you have been in other parts of our country that have uh, deserts and that sort of thing. But this, wilder- this wilderness isn't like a you know, a beautiful forest with mountains and that sort of thing. It's, it is kind of arid uh, desert wilderness. And there wouldn't have been the, uh, you know, you don't get on the four-lane highway and travel through a, a stretch of wilderness on your way to another city. Uh, this would have been uh, totally undeveloped in a way that we can't uh, really even imagine. They went three days into the wilderness. And again, they're moving potentially two million people through the wilderness. They're probably not moving great distances at a time. But one of the number one uh, uh, items uh, that they would have needed for survival was water. Other than oxygen, it's the most necessary thing to our survival. They say, what, you can go like three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, and like 30 minutes without food. Or at least maybe that's, that's just me, 30 minutes without food. No, three weeks without food, something like that. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water. Because it was bitter. So they've gone three days. You can imagine their canteen or however they stored water is beginning to run dry. And they finally come to a place where there is water. Yay! And then they find out the water is, isn't potable. You can't, you can't drink the water. And the people, look in verse 24, the people grumbled. The people grumbled. Look, have your Bibles open there in front of you. Look in chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Look in chapter 17, verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled. Unfortunately, it's going to take a little while for Israel to begin to learn a lesson about grumbling. But here we see the people of Israel grumbling against Moses. What shall we drink? And he cries to the Lord, and the Lord provides a way for them to drink. God has just, uh, prior to this incident... God has just miraculously and single-handedly delivered his people. Remember, three days earlier, they were watching the bodies of the Egyptian army floating in the waves and the, uh, the, yeah, the, the waves of the Red Sea there. God has just delivered his people. He had saved them. God had just provided salvation from Egypt for the people of Israel. And so now... 
now what's happening? God has just saved them, and so now what is God doing? Well, let's think about this in your context. What does God do after he saves you? Does God save you and then immediately beam you into heaven for eternity, right? God, forgive me of my sins. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And then you're gone. You puff of smoke, right? You beam up. and not, No. God actually leaves us here, and he begins a process in our lives. Who knows the big fancy theological word for that process that I'm referring to? Yeah, sanctification. God saves us, and then he begins a work in us to make us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. He begins the process of sanctification. After we get saved, we don't go straight to heaven, and Israel didn't go straight to the promised land. God began growing them. Pastor Philip Graham Ryken says he began the process of sanctification, the long, hard difficult process of being conformed to the holiness of God. Do you ever feel like the work that God is doing in you is a long and hard and difficult process of being conformed to the holiness of God? That's sanctification. He goes on, Riken goes on to say, going through the wilderness was not necessary for Israel's salvation, but it was necessary for their sanctification. God had already saved them. A one-time-in-history moment experience, God delivered them from Egypt, and now God has them in the promised land, or excuse me, in the wilderness. And God is beginning now this process of sanctifying his people. And so God brings them to a place three days into the wilderness where the water's bad. And again, they don't have a bunch of uh, uh, Dasani water bottles, you know, that they that they're pulling behind them in carts. They don't have water filtration, water purification system. She agrees with me that she's just saying amen. She's just saying amen. The joke is, like, the louder I preach, the harder she preaches as well. Um, and so God, God brings him to this place, and, and the water's bad. The water, for some reason, is not drinkable. The language here seems to describe it as maybe overly salty or brackish, or maybe there's some kind of poisonous element in it. But very quickly, the people of Israel realize, great, we've got something that looks like it's what we need, but it's not what we need. And in fact, if we try to drink it, it's actually going to hasten. I mean, it's going to be worse for us than if we don't drink. And what do God's people do? God's people do just exactly what you and I so often do when God brings us to a moment where, our, where the point is for us to trust in him, and his people begin to grumble. They grumble to Moses. They grumble to the earthly representative of God, the earthly leader, and they grumble, and they, they're grumbling, and uh, they, they begin to grumble to Moses and they have a legitimate concern, right? I mean, it, it, they're grumbling because they're looking at circumstances that look incredibly um, uh, dismal to them. They're, they're looking at something that, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm in that setting with my, with my wife and my children, maybe I've got some livestock, right? Maybe I've got my parents and grandparents with me. And we're like, okay, Moses, you led us three days out here. None of us have ever been here before. You were a shepherd in this general area of the world 40 years ago. And now, now you're leading us out here. You're supposed to know where the water holes are, right? And what are we going to do? This is a serious problem. The Bible describes the people of Israel's response, though, not in terms of a concern that they shared with Moses and then went to the Lord in prayer, but they were, they were complaining and grumbling against Moses. These are people who have just seen some of the most amazing works of God in the history of the world. The plagues, the deliverance, the, 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 um, uh, the Passover, the deliverance out of Egypt, the deliverance through the Red Sea. And when we come, just like the people of Israel, when we, when we come against hardship, we, we are quick to forget what God has already done in our lives. God, brothers and sisters, if you think through your life, there are so many times that you can point at God's amazing provision and God's amazing care in your life. And if you know Christ as your Savior, the most, uh, uh, the, the most obvious way is when he saved you from your sin and made you part of his family. 
And when we come against hard times now, we quickly forget what God has done for us already. And we just want God to, to take away the unpleasant. We want God to take away the hardship. Just give us, give us what we want. Give us what we need. And we whine. I, th- I think a word for us to help us understand the grumbling here is whining. Right? Some of us have a rule in our home. No, no whining. And yet we as adults, we, we can be whiners as well. Why do we whine? Well, when we whine, we're, we're assuming that there was something that we deserve or that we need that we aren't getting. And so we whine, we grumble, we complain. We, they're, they're, the people of Israel aren't getting what they want, really what they need. One author in his commentary on Exodus says this, It was one thing to sing the praises of their deliverer, their deliverer right, which, which they've just done coming out of, out of Egypt, and quite another to live out that faith when confronted with the problems of ordinary living. Friends, you and I are still in the wilderness. We're still in the wilderness. Now, uh, it makes it harder when we think that we're in the promised land. And living, living in uh, upper-middle-class America like all of us do, we're very inclined to think that this is heaven, or it's supposed to be, or it's supposed to feel like heaven. And we're working really hard to make now feel like heaven, and then we wonder why it doesn't. And if I could just get the perfect spouse, and the perfect home, and the perfect job, and the perfect kids, and the perfect fleet of vehicles, and the perfect wardrobe, and the perfect whatever, and then like then it's going to feel like I belong. But brothers and sisters, we're in the wilderness. Right now, we're still in the wilderness. And if it feels some days like you're in the wilderness, it's because you're in the wilderness. This world, the old wonderful hymn, yeah, I mean, some of you are already thinking it, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Many of the difficulties in our lives are things that God has used to teach us about himself and make us more like Christ. We're being tested and unfortunately, we don't, have, um, we don't have flying colors on all our uh, report cards. The Israelites were lacking faith. They didn't believe that God would provide for them. God had on purpose brought them to a place where it would look to them like the, 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 uh, the challenge was impossible to be met in their own resources, which it was. And God wanted them to turn to him. Many of the difficulties in our lives uh, are this way. I know some of the hardest days of my life are days that now, though, I wouldn't trade away because God showed himself faithful and strong. If you told me that, you, that I could erase those days from my life, but with them I'd also have to erase what I learned about God in those days, I wouldn't erase them. And I think for many of you, you wouldn't either. And so what does God do? Well, look in verse 25. And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log or a tree or a branch, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, some scholars have tried to figure out exactly where this, uh, this spring of water, Mara, where that was, and they tried to find uh, what, you know, uh, flora live in that area and like what kind of tree could he have thrown in that would have negated the poisonous stuff that was in the water brothers and sisters god was doing a miracle here this this wasn't something that you know moses just needed to learn some he, he didn't watch uh, bear grills enough if he would have watched bear grills he would have known oh you just take this shrub you throw it in the spring of water and everybody's going to be able to drink just fine no it's not how that's not, that's, not how, um, that's not how it worked. God was doing a miracle. He was taking something that was bitter, and he was making it sweet, and he was showing that he was the one who was able to do this. It was a miracle. God was taking a tree and turning what was bitter into something sweet. God was taking a piece of wood and turning something from bitter into sweet, and this is something that God has done not just here, there, there are many trees in the Bible that do a great amount of good, right? The tree of life in the Old Testament and then again, or excuse me, in Genesis, but then also in Revelation. This tree right here, God uses to do a lot of good. Friends, the tree on which Jesus Christ hung to pay for our sins 
was another tree where God took something that was bitter and a tree made it sweet. And I don't think that's reading something into scriptures. I think that's understanding themes throughout scripture. The people of Egypt, as they would, or excuse me, uh, uh, the original readers of Exodus wouldn't have understood fully the beauty of what's going on here. But as New Testament readers, we do see God taking something bitter and using a tree to make something sweet again. That tree, the tree on which Christ hung, was the most bitter situation in human history, and it became the most sweet and blessed event in history. And just like the people of Israel received life from the spring of Mara after the tree came between them and the water, they received life from that water. So we receive life from Jesus Christ because of the tree on which he hung. One pastor says this, God's grace is so amazing that he even provides for whiners. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? I mean, I think sometimes we think God provides for us if we've got our act together. And, and, and you look around this room, and I know some of you are still, I keep telling you this, but you keep doing it. You look around in a room like this, and you think everybody else in the room has their act together. And that everybody else is really probably humming along at a level that you just can't imagine being like they're just. And I'm just telling you, all of us are whiners. The word I always use, we're just a bunch of knuckleheads. And we desperately need the work of God in our lives. And thankfully, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have our Sunday best on the inside in order for God to provide for us. And God provides for the people of Israel as they're grumbling. Before they learned the lesson, God provided for them. And his provision for them while they were whining was part of the lesson he wanted them to learn. I'm good. I'm God. You're whiners. I'm going to keep taking care of you. Now, come on, learn from me. Now, he doesn't get impatient like I would. God doesn't bless us because we do things perfectly. He didn't bless the people of Israel because they did things perfectly. God doesn't bless us because... We do things perfectly. God is bringing his people into this testing situation. That's where we get into the end of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Famous English-British pastor Charles Spurgeon described what's going on here as the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. They went to the university, and he taught and trained them, and they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. So here they are in the wilderness, and they are, they are in, they are in um, the university setting where God is testing them. Which brings us to point number two. God, God explains to them the testing here in verses 25 and 26. Verse, the second half of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, what is God doing here? God's actually doing something really specific. God's doing a God thing here, in verses, uh, especially in verse 26. God says this, If you will such and such, then I will such and such. And in biblical language, what do we call that? What do we call that kind of agreement? What do we call that arrangement? It's a covenant. God is putting together a covenant here with his people. God is a God of covenant. We could take a lot of time, but I just wanted to point that out, that um, God's establishing a covenant with his people here. If you will do such and such, I will do such and such. And the terms of this are the, this covenant are you listen to my voice and do what is right, and I won't put the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, all the plagues and those sorts of things. I'm the Lord, your healer. These instructions, again, come after God provided salvation for his people. Again, we, can never, we don't ever want to confuse how we are saved. We are saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing. God is the one who saves us. But once God saves us, we enter into a relationship with him, and there are terms to the covenant. And God does want us to obey. God does command us to obey and to keep his covenant. So these instructions are coming after salvation, but during sanctification. 
Again, one author says, if these commands were not for Israel's salvation, then what were they for? Well, they were for Israel's sanctification. Genuine saving faith is always followed by joyful good works. Genuine saving faith, genuine, genuine saving faith is always followed by joyful good works. That does not mean that we're perfect. That does not mean that we don't take two steps forward and one step backwards. But when God saves someone, he changes someone. God wants to do more than simply, uh, he, God wants us to do more than simply believe what he has done. He also wants us to obey what he has commanded. He wants his people to trust and obey. You know the famous old song, Trust and Obey. I remember I went through a, a little bit of a time where I kind of, I, I, thought, I thought I knew better than everybody else. And I thought, oh, that, that Trust and Obey song, that's kind of a legalistic song. I'm not sure that we should sing that song anymore. I don't know why I was thinking that was foolish um, uh, of me to even to, to think that. Because, because that's, that's actually, brothers and sisters, just exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to trust him. God, you brought me to a place where there's bad water. But you've brought me to this place. And so I'm trusting that you're going to be the one to take care of me. You're going to be the one to satisfy. You're going to be the one who meets my need here. And I'm going to just keep obeying you during this time that looks impossible. He wants his people to listen and to do. Look in verse 26. He says it, in, uh, it, says it two different times. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes. And then he's going to say it again. Give ear to his commands and keep all his statutes. He's saying twice, listen to what I'm telling you and do what I'm telling you. He wants his people to listen and to do. And unfortunately, we are very much like the people of Israel. Many of you, many of you are aware of what God wants you to do, you just disobey. And some of you just disobey because you just want to disobey. You, you don't want to obey God. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. That would be deceiving yourself. If anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer of the word. He's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For when he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. And some of you, you know that the Lord has brought a hand of discipline into your life. Because you're disobeying what he has clearly communicated for you to do. And I don't know what that is. Right? That's, you, that's between you and the Lord. But whatever, whatever he's bringing to your mind right now, that's probably it. Right? If you're sitting there thinking, oh, man, Jeremy, you're talking to me. I prom well, I am. I'm talking to 100 people right now. But I'm not, like, I'm not thinking of anyone specifically. Right? Like, I'm not standing here thinking, now I know that Megan and Brandon, you know, like, I know exactly what both of them are dealing with, and they really need to hear. Like, all of us need to hear this. Friends, if there, if there, is, if there are commands of God of things you should do or things that you are doing that God commands that you shouldn't do, let me encourage you to trust and obey, to hear and to do. Look again, look, look at the, um, the seriousness, the... Uh, absolute, um, what's the word, uh, devotion that God is demanding of his people. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in your own eyes? No, it says, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. If, if I want you to do these things, and if you'll do these things, uh, you know, God is saying, I will, I will protect you. Listen, give ear, do, keep his statues. There's total devotion demanded. God is demanding, he's giving a covenant, and he's saying, if you'll do these things, if you will be totally devoted to me, I will 
prevent any of the diseases that I put on Egypt from touching you. Now, did Israel keep this covenant with absolute and total devotion? And do you and I keep this covenant with absolute and total devotion? This is why Jesus had to come. This is why Jesus had to come. Because God gives commands and law that we must keep, and we, like Israel, fail to do it. Do you see how many times I read this morning, the people grumbled, the people grumbled, the people, in chapter 15, they grumble. In chapter 16, they grumble. In chapter 17, they grumble. Like, the people are just, they're grumbling away. And I know that I'm tempted to think, if I had seen the Red Sea part and a pillar of fire and cloud lead me through it and to the other side and the most powerful army in the world destroyed by powers that can only be explained by Yahweh, I know that I would never doubt him again and that I would always know that he has what's best for me and I would... I actually am tempted to think that I would do better than Israel, and yet on a daily basis, I don't. This is why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come because we failed to keep the covenant. The first Adam failed. Israel failed. You and I failed. I think sometimes people think that like I'm uh, unnecessarily hard on us or that I'm negative about our ability and, uh, um, and capacity and capability. I, I think the most hope-giving, encouraging thing that we can say is, even though you are as bad as you are, God in Christ has forgiven you. God has brought his son Jesus to live the life that you were supposed to live. But like Israel, you failed, but Jesus didn't. And the death that you should have, um, the death that should have, you should have experienced, the punishment you should have experienced for your sin, Jesus took upon himself so that you don't have to. This, this message is a gospel message. It is a good news message. Jesus uh, excuse me, when, uh, when we are tested, we often fail. Jesus came to earth to live a perfect life and succeed in all of the law. And theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. Jesus came and kept all of the laws. In Matthew chapter 5, it says of, of Christ that he came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets. Jesus comes, and when you and, you and I were supposed to honor father and mother but failed to do it, you know what Jesus did? He perfectly honored his father and mother. And when you and I were supposed to Thou shalt not lie. You know what Jesus did? Jesus never lied. And when you're not supposed to covet, Jesus never coveted. Jesus came as the perfect fulfiller of the law. His active obedience is part of what we need for salvation. His passive, the theologians differentiate between active obedience. This is some of you are nerding out and loving this, and some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Active and passive obedience. His passive obedience was his death on the cross, right? He wasn't, he wasn't actively keeping law, he was passively receiving judgment and punishment. So that's how they differentiate between the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. And that's actually important because many Christians only focus on the passive obedience of Christ. They just talk about Jesus came to die for our sins, but Jesus also came to live a righteous life for you. Both of those, both of those are necessary for our salvation. Active and passive obedience, that's a whole other sermon series. Brothers and sisters, where where is Israel geographically on the planet? Where are they during this temptation? And I don't mean the specific, where are they? Uh, they were at Mara, but then they were led out from Mara. To yeah, they're in the wilderness of Shur, but oh, I just said it. They're in the wilderness. That's where Egypt is. God has brought Israel, excuse me, man, I do that all the time, don't I? God brought Israel into the wilderness, and he tested them, and they failed. And do you remember? This is not coincidental. This is so cool. I, I, I mean, like, I, I get, like, I, I want to, like, drum roll, get ready, because I'm going to tell you something that's so, so cool and so awesome. Do you remember 
Jesus being tempted and tested by Satan? Where was he? He was in the wilderness. So, so look, at what, look at what God is doing. Look at what the scriptures are teaching us. You and I, like Israel, Israel was brought into the wilderness and they were tested and they failed over and over and over again. And it is not a coincidence that when Jesus is tested, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, that he is in the wilderness. He is fulfilling. He's doing the thing that we've all always failed to do. And he does it perfectly. He succeeds. He gets an A plus 100%. Jesus is brought into the wilderness as the second Adam, as the one true man. He's the only one who ever lived the Christian life. Jesus Christ is the only one who lived the Christian life. We're, by God's grace, striving. We're trying to live the Christian life. But, I mean, Jesus, he nailed it. He lived the Christian life, and he was brought into the wilderness. And where Israel failed and where you and I fail, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he is tempted for 40 days in a way that would be beyond any imagination, anything that any of us can imagine. And Jesus succeeds. Jesus in the wilderness never failed. One author writes, The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The temptation was to get his own food in his own way, not trusting his father to provide. But Jesus passed the test. He said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus did not grumble and complain about what God had failed to provide, but trusted his father to sustain him. Israel was brought into the wilderness and they grumbled and complained about how God had not provided for them and they failed the test. And Jesus was brought into the wilderness and, and he was hungry and Satan tempted him to provide for himself in an illegitimate way. And he said, no, I'm not going to turn stones into bread. I'm going to trust in my father that he's going to provide for me according to his way and his time. And Jesus passed the test. Now there's... There, this is the good news of the gospel. And this isn't me being creative with passages of Scripture. This is the point of the Scriptures. There's great blessing to those who trust and obey. Look, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Verse 26, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And there are many who today would try to use a passage like this to say, if you'll just be obedient enough, God will heal you of all your diseases. God will heal you. You'll never get sick. You're, you'll always have everything that you need. But they forget that God had just given a covenant that all of us fail. Like so... If anything, this covenant would show us, now I probably deserve more diseases. I probably deserve more sickness because I failed to keep the covenant that those blessings would bring about. Does that make sense? I've been studying this, so it makes really good sense to me. I hope this is, making really, this is really important for us to get. But who did keep the covenant? Jesus kept the covenant. So who did succeed? Jesus succeeded. So upon whom does disease and death never conquer? And when we become Christians, the New Testament describes us as being in Christ. Right? So when I'm in Christ, this is awesome, isn't it, Shane? I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep preaching. Um, I, I'll, I'll stop by noon, I promise. I'll stop here in the next 10 minutes. I do genuinely get excited about this. And brothers and sisters, I want you to become excited about this. The good news of the Christian life is Jesus. There's a one-name answer for the good news of the gospel, and it's Jesus. And when you are in him, the diseases that God brought upon Egypt, the healer, the ultimate, the final day of healing, comes to us in Jesus Christ. He's the one who kept the covenant. We are in him. Those promises come to us. Number three, God provided, excuse me, God proved his trustworthiness again. Look in verse 27. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. God brings his people to a place where he supplies all, of, all they need. All their needs are supplied by him. These, the numbers, 12 and 70, it's very likely, most likely, that those numbers are uh, symbolic, that they're representative. Now, maybe, maybe there were literally 12 trees and uh, 70 trees and, and 12 uh, um, springs, but what's being communicated here is the 12 tribes of Israel, the 70 elders of Israel, God brought them to a place where everyone could relax and find their spring 
and God was going to take care of them. So brothers and sisters, God does test us, but God also provides green pastures and still waters and a time for us to stop and be taken care of. They had all that they need. God was not going to let them suffer and die in the wilderness. And God won't let you suffer and die in the wilderness. And the world that we live in is getting crazier faster than we can comprehend. And there's a lot of things that a lot of us want to say and post and do and get fired up about. But brothers and sisters, let's learn where Israel failed the test to to know that God was going to take care of them and God was going to provide for them. Let's learn from them and let's remember that though we may be in a moment where in in our culture and in our world and in our history and to watch the news, etc., we may feel like this does not, like God's not going to take care of us. I promise you, who cares if I promise you, God promises you, He will. He will take care of you. We have far more evidence that God has brought us to Elam than God has brought us to Mara. There are occasions in our lives where God brings us to Mara. We live most of our lives at Elam, especially those of us in the Western America that we've grown up in. God, we have lived in Elam. We have far more Elam in us than Mara. Friends, if and when we are led by him to Mara, let's be ready with the lessons we've learned about him. In conclusion... Let's not forget what Jesus said about himself. Remember, th- th- this passage is talking a lot about waters and springs of water, and we know the need that we have for water in order for us to live. Jesus said of himself in John, uh, uh, several places in John, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We are all thirsty. God creates us thirsty. God creates us with longings. God creates us with desires. And we look around the world and we think that so many other things will satiate our thirst, will, will uh, give us what we, what we think we want, what we think we need. And then we get the thing and we're just as thirsty as we were before we had the thing. It's because the thirst that God has created you with is meant to only be fulfilled and satisfied by Jesus Christ. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Brothers and sisters, do you, I want you to hear this morning a wide open invitation from Jesus Christ himself for you to come to him and have fellowship with him. And you don't have to get your act together and you don't have to be perfect ahead of time. You don't have to stop whining before you come to him. You don't have to stop grumbling before you come to him. Just go to him. Go to him. Go to Jesus. Jesus is the sweet water. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the sweet water. Your life is going to have Mara in it for the rest of your life until we are delivered to the promised land, until we're dwelling with him forever. But now we can drink from the fountain of living waters. Jesus is the sweet water, and he has 12 fountains and 70 trees. He has all that you need. And if you've never come to the fountain of living waters and wondered why you feel so thirsty, it's because only he can satisfy what you desire. And if you have then continue to learn of him and listen and do, trust and obey, rejoice also that he did these things perfectly for you and you are in him. He kept the covenant and gives you the reward of his keeping the covenant. That's the point. Seek by his grace to face the bitter moments, the Mara moments in life with faith that has been tested and is growing and made strong. Brothers and sisters, we have been delivered from Egypt, and now he dwells with us as we are on his way to dwell with him. There's some lines from a song. Jay, did you put the lines from the song on the the PowerPoint? No? Okay. That's okay. Uh, There's an an old hymn. I don't know how old it is, actually. The Sands of Time Are Sinking. How many of you know the Sands of Time Are Sinking? A very few of you. Okay, a very few of you. Um, Josh, we may want to... Where'd Josh go? We may, we may add this to our repertoire. One of the verses says this, O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted. 
more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I love those first two lines. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, deep well of love. Brothers and sisters, drink freely from the fountain. Jesus Christ says to himself, if you're thirsty, come to me. He is the sweet water. Take out your hymnals, please, and turn, and I'll invite the music team to come up. I'm going to say a few words about this song before we, before we sing it. Page number 548. It's a song that many of us are very familiar with, As the Deer. And look in your, in your hymnals at page 104, or song 148, Psalm 148, song 148, As the Deer. Verse 1 says this, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And then, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful as we sing these verses. The second part of the verse says this, You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. Is that true of you? Is Christ the sweet water? Is he alone your heart's desire, or does your heart desire Houses and lands and riches and fame and comfort and ease and pleasure. And and if your heart desires those things like my heart does, then as you sing this song, make it a prayer. As you sing, you alone are my heart's desire. Sing those words, but God knows your heart and make that, God, I, I want you alone to be my heart's desire. I want alone to worship you. Look at verse 3, because the words only intensify. I want you more than gold or silver. Only you can satisfy. Now, that is true. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. This might not be the deepest, most theologically intense song in our hymnal, but brothers and sisters, these truths are absolutely profound. They're absolutely true. And I pray that it would be our heart's desire that we would pant after the sweet water who is Jesus Christ. Father, as we conclude our time here this morning, I pray that all of us would drink freely of your son, Jesus Christ, more. That we would find him to be the sweet water. That we would, that we would drink of him so that our hearts would be satisfied. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know your son as the satisfying water of their soul salvation. Save them today, we pray. If you're here this morning and you are not in relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, you've never drank of the sweet water of Jesus Christ, please don't leave here this morning without turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And if you'd like to talk with someone, you can catch me or one of the other pastors. Just... just uh, Just let us know that you'd like to talk, and we will stay here this morning as long as you need us to. Father, I pray that we would long and thirst for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's all stand, and we'll sing together, and then Pastor Will will come and close us in prayer.